Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. We are experiencing a crisis of truth in America. Americans as a whole are very untrusting of institutions that have long stood historically as sources of truth. How many Americans really believe what they read in the newspapers? How many Americans really believe what they hear on the television? How many Americans really believe our politicians when they speak? There's a crisis of truth. And Americans as a whole are very doubtful, very suspicious that they're hearing the truth from any of these traditional sources. Now, that tendency, I am afraid, has also bridged over in to the church and the confidence that Christians have that the Bible is God's truth. Barner Research is a Christian research firm that is accepted uh, even by the secular research like Gallup Poll as being a reputable research firm. And they specialize in areas that would interest Christians. And they have done a survey the past several months, and the results should be very shocking to you because they're shocking to me and alarming. Now, in this survey, they called people at random, and they asked them various questions to determine how they would categorize these people. If they'd categorize them as born-again Christians or as nominal Christians or as evangelical Christians. They didn't just come out and say, are you born again? But rather, they asked them questions such as, have they made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their lives today? And did they believe that when they died, they would go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior? Now, if they answered yes to those questions, then Barna considered these people born again. Now, those people that answered yes to those questions, 68% said they did not believe in absolute moral truth. In other words, 68 of those who said they professed faith in Christ and trusted Him for their salvation said they did not believe that wrong was always wrong. That there was absolute moral truth. That it depends rather on the situation whether adultery is wrong or not. Whether stealing is wrong or not. Now, even more alarming... Of the teenagers that they surveyed, who also answered those questions about commitment to Jesus, trusting Him for salvation, confess their sins, 90% of the teenagers said they did not believe in absolute moral truth. 
Now, that's alarming to me. But I'm going to tell you something that's more alarming than that. They had a subcategory under the born-again Christians, which they classified as evangelical. Now, in addition to answering the questions that they had trusted Christ for their salvation and believed they were going to heaven because they had confessed their sins and trusted Him, they also asked them such question as, Did they believe their faith was very important to their life? Did they believe that a person had a responsibility to share their religious beliefs about Christ with non-Christians? Did they believe that Satan exists? Did they believe that eternal salvation is possible only through grace, not works? Believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth? And did they believe that God was all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today? Now, if they answered yes to those questions, then they were considered as evangelical. Again, they didn't say, are you an evangelical? They just asked them those questions. If they said yes, they were qualified as evangelical. Now, of those who answered yes to those other questions, 42% of those, almost half, said they did not believe in absolute moral truth. Now, those are people that are filling our churches in America. We are experiencing a crisis of truth. And for that reason, I am beginning a series on why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, you may already believe it. And I trust you do. And I want to reaffirm for you the trustworthiness of this book as the Word of God. And also, I want to give you some ammunition so when people ask you, why do you believe the Bible is God's Word? You can have some solid reasons why you believe. I love this book. To me, it is sweeter than honey on a honeycomb and more precious than silver and gold. I mean, I love this book so much that I have been reading and seriously studying this book for 34 years. I govern my life by what's in this book. My family, I govern my family by what's in this book. My finances. I raised my children, and I'm raising them by what's in this book. I trust it and believe absolutely it is the Word of God. From cover to cover. Now, I don't believe the maps are inspired, but from cover to cover. I believe it is the Word of God. It is my absolute guide. I look to it for everything in direction and decisions that I make in life. I have submitted my life to the authority of this book because I believe it is the Word of God. Now, why would a thinking 20th century man of, let's grant me average intelligence anyway, place his confidence, his trust, and faith in a 2,000 plus year old book? Portions of this book are 3,000 or more years old. Now, why would I order my life by one book written centuries ago? Has not man's knowledge increased 
in 2,000 years? Are there not books written today that are much better? Why do I trust the Bible? Now, some of you might think, well, you trust the Bible because you're a preacher. No, the truth is, I'm a preacher because I trust the Bible. That came first. Some of you might say, well, it's just a carryover from your childhood. Your parents told you to believe the Bible, and you did, and you've just continued to do so. No. I went through a period in college where I really questioned if the Bible was truly God's authoritative Word. And I did some serious looking and questioning and came up, of course, with the conclusion that it was. But it wasn't just because I was taught it from childhood. Some of you might say, well, you just accept it on blind faith. You just have to accept it that way. No, that's not it either. I trust the Bible because the Holy Spirit has convinced me that it is the Word of God. And this faith is not a blind faith, but it is a faith based on solid evidence. Modern man can believe the Bible without committing intellectual suicide. He does not have to put his mind in neutral to accept the Bible as God's authoritative word for his life. It's not a blind faith. But it is a leap into the light. Because there is solid, rational evidence. There are intelligent reasons. For believing that the Bible is the Word of God. And if somebody tells you there's no good reason for believing the Bible is God's Word, they're showing you their ignorance. They've never investigated it. Because I am convinced when a person seriously, with an open mind, will investigate the evidence that stands behind the truth that this is the Word of God, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, many of you have read Josh McDowell's books. Evidence that demands a verdict. If you haven't, I would recommend those books to you. Both dealing with the Scriptures and with Jesus as being the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, don't let anyone tell you that an intelligent person wouldn't accept this book as being the Word of God. I beg to differ. I say any real intelligent person with an open mind couldn't come up with any other conclusion when they look at the evidence. And you and I, over the next several weeks, will be looking at that evidence. And today we come to evidence number one. Now, the main truth, and I've provided a place in your bulletin for you to take notes, so let me encourage you to do that. The main truth is, because the Bible is God's Word, our trust in it is based on solid evidence. And we will look at evidence number one today. And that is, the Bible claims to be God's Word. Now, you might be thinking, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. I mean, the Koran claims to be the Word of Allah. Well, I'll grant you, this evidence by itself would not convince me or anyone else that the Bible is God's Word. Because other books claim to be a message from God. But... We must start here because if the Bible didn't claim to be God's Word, we couldn't go any further, could we? <laughs> I mean, if it didn't say it was God's Word, then would I be foolish to say it was? 
And I want to show you clearly today that the Bible undeniably claims to be the Word of God. And this is the foundation from which we must start. First, the Bible assumes that it is God's Word. None of the biblical writers attempt to convince or argue people that they're writing God's Word. You never read in the Bible words such as this by the writers. Now, you're not going to believe this, but I'm writing God's Word to you. What I'm telling you really is the Word of God now. You won't believe it, but it really is. Rather, the writers just accept and assume that they are giving God's authoritative Word. Over 3,800 times, the writers refer to their words as the very words of God. Over 3,800 times. With phrases such as, thus says the Lord, or the Lord spoke, or the word of the Lord. And these were reputable men who made these claims. Two kings, two priests, one doctor, a statesman, theologians, a general, a scribe. These were people who were men of reputation. And they were making this claim for the Bible. Now, the Old Testament. Let's look at a few of the Old Testament claims that it is the Word of God. Look over in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. You will recognize this passage. Moses is preparing... To lead the people out of Egypt. In Exodus 4, beginning with verse 10, God and Moses are having a conversation. Exodus 4:10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Neither recently, nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Some people think that he was a stutterer. Now then, go. And I, even I. Excuse me, verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Who has made man's mouth, or made his, him dumb, or deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. God didn't say, I'll teach you what you are to think, but what you are to say. Now, the importance in that is, is that God said, I will give you the very words, Moses, that I want you to speak. Now, if God said, I'll give you the thoughts, and left it up to Moses to come up with the words, then we might have had some question whether Moses was accurately portraying the thoughts that God gave him. Right? And there are people who would say, well, you know, the Bible contains the thoughts of God, but the words are of men, and, you know, it's, so it's not exactly authoritative. But God said to Moses, I'll tell you exactly what to say. I'll give you the words. Now, let's look over 40 years later in Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
Deuteronomy chapter 4, all this law in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is coming about. And Moses is speaking 40 years later, before they prepare to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In verse 2, Moses is talking to the Israelites, preparing them for their venture. He was not going with them into the promised land. And he says in Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. Now Moses is assuming and accepting that the words that he spoke to them the commandments He gave were none other than the very words of God. Isaiah, 20 times, claims His words are actually God's words. For instance, in Isaiah 1.10, He says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Jeremiah, over a hundred times, claims that His words are the very words of the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. The other prophets are the same way. Just thumb through the prophets. Start reading in chapter 1. And you don't have to read too many verses until you read something like, And the word of the Lord came to Malachi. Or an oracle, A burden of the Lord came to the prophet. They accepted the fact that they were speaking the very words of God. David in the Psalms, over and over again, like in Psalm 119, he says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Oh, how I love thy law. David accepted the law of Israel was the law of God. Absolute moral truth. Over 3,800 times the Bible claims to be the very words of God. Now let's look at the New Testament claims. 2 Timothy chapter 3, our verse of the month, is perhaps the clearest claim in the New Testament to the Scripture being the Word of God. 2 Timothy, all the T books are together, so if you find one in the New Testament, you can find 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. That's a phrase we're going to look at. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, you see the phrase inspired by God? Now, this is one place where I really like the way the NIV translates it better. It says, all Scripture is god Breathed, And that's what that Greek word really is that translated uh, is inspired by God. It's theonoustia. Theo meaning God and noustia meaning breath. All Scripture is God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Old Testament... The breath of God is associated with His creative acts. Now, hold your place in 2 Timothy, because we'll come back. 
and turn over to Psalm 33. Psalm 33 is one passage that makes it very clear that the breath of God is associated with His creative power. And this will help us understand what it means when Scripture says it is God-breathed. Over in Psalm 33, look in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. You see, breath associated with His creative power. And so to say God breathed, you can say is to say God created. Right? And so to say all Scripture is God breathed is to say all Scripture is God created. It's to say that the Bible is a creation of God. He used men, but He is the one who breathed out through these men the exact words that He wanted in His book. There's also a close connection between breath and word. Look in verse 6 again. You have a parallel in the Hebrew. The word, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of the Lord, of the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. You see the parallel between the word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth? Now, if you put your hand in front of your mouth and talk, you feel breath coming out. Because you can't speak without breath. Because it's the air moving over your vocal cords that makes the noise. And so breath and speaking go together. And so to say that the Scripture is God-breathed is to say the Scripture is God-spoken. Right? Or God-worded. Would you let me coin that phrase? All Scripture is God-breathed means God-spoken. God-worded and God-created. It is a creation of God. Not that men wrote a book and then God breathed inspiration into it. That's not the concept. The concept is rather God moved upon the human writers in such a way that He brought through them the very words that He wanted written. And that's where the term inspired can be misleading. Because you might think, well, men wrote the book and then God just breathed into it. As uh, R.C. Sproul says, the better word would be expired. Uh, that God breathed it out, but he said that word's already been taken by some other industry. So we don't get to appreciate it in Christian circles. But it's not that he breathed into it, but it's rather he breathed out. Through those men, the very words that he wanted written. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, let's look at the phrase, all Scripture. Now, the term Scripture, and we're back over in 2 Timothy. The term Scripture literally just means writings. The words, the writings of Scripture. 
Those are God-breathed, God-created. On the original parchment that Paul wrote, that Moses wrote, and we don't have those, but if we had those original parchments, every sentence, every line, every word, every point, every pin stroke, every jot, every tittle were put there by the inspiration of God. Therefore, they are without error. There are no mistakes. A perfect God would not give an imperfect word to imperfect men. What would be the use in that? An imperfect men with an imperfect word would have imperfect results. So a perfect God created, breathed forth a perfect word. Now the word all, meaning every part, the whole of Scripture is God-breathed. Not just the theological aspects, but the historical and the scientific and every aspect of Scripture is God-breathed. It is without error. It is perfect as originally given. And I say that because there are those who would like to say, well, when it speaks on matters of theology, then it's perfect. But when he gets into history or when he gets into scientific things, then nah, he's not speaking then uh, perfect truth. Well, according to Second Timothy uh, 3.16, we don't have that luxury. All means all. Now, he was speaking of the Old Testament. But by other evidences that we'll be going to in the future, and even today, I think it is clear that the New Testament is also included in the fact of being God-breathed. Now, how did God do this? How did He use men? Now, some people, again, mistakenly think what this means is, when we say God-breathed and God-created, God-worded, is that, you know, Matthew sat down and all of a sudden he went in this trance. He had a pen in his hand and... Uh... And then all of a sudden he woke up and there he had... 28 chapters. What's this? That's called the dictation theory. Nobody seriously in scholarship believes that. Because the Scripture never indicates that that's what happened. In fact, we have over in 2 Peter an indication of how God worked to bring about Scripture through men. Look over in 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, beginning with verse 20 and 21. He says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, he's writing about the Old Testament prophecies, but again, I think it is clear that the same approach and the same method that God used to bring about the prophecies of the Old Testament is the same method He used to bring about the Scriptures 
that we have today, Old and New Testament. We have some insight. First of all, it's not an act of human will. None of the prophets who spoke words of prophecy just sat down one day and said, well, you know, I think I'll come up with something clever. It's not an act of human will. Scripture is not men sitting down and deciding what they want to write. It's not men sitting down and saying, I'll write what I want to write. I'll just come together here like writing a term paper. Now, I prayed a lot when I wrote term papers. But I never came to the point I felt like they were what inspired of God, right? Just a lot of prayer. It's not writing what their human wills wanted to write. But rather, they were born along, moved by the Holy Spirit. You see that phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit? That word moved is used in the New Testament to speak of a sailboat being carried across the water. It's the idea of the wind catching the sails and moving the ship to its desired destination. Maybe some of you have been in a sailboat and you know that feeling when the wind catches the sails and kind of pushes the boat along. That's what this word is. Moved. Born along. And what it says is that the Holy Spirit moved upon human writers, taking them along, bearing them along to the desired destination, which was them writing the very words of God. The Holy Spirit so worked in and through these human writers, not blotting out their personalities, not blotting out their human experiences, but using those in a way that brought about the very words of God. This is a miracle. It is the product of man and the product of God. Men wrote it, but they were men that were moved and borne along by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote exactly the words that God wanted them to write. You know, in a sense, this is like the incarnation. Jesus was totally man and totally God. A human and divine product, you might say. This book, written by humans, their personalities seen in that, their life experiences come through, but yet it is also completely, totally the Word of God. A miracle. Look over in Luke chapter 1, and we can see an example of how Luke came about writing what he wrote in Luke and in Acts. Luke chapter 1. Beginning with verse 1. He's writing to Theophilus, who evidently was a leader. And Luke was setting down for him the history of the Christian church. And so it's Sometimes if you haven't done so, read the book of Acts and then go from the book of, uh, excuse me, read the book of Luke and then go from the book of Luke right into Acts because really they are the same compilation. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, 
to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, the picture we have here is that Luke takes the things that had been written by Mark, perhaps by Matthew, and others, and then he takes those and he brings those together, and from those he writes the account of Luke and Acts. Now, that may appear to you to be like working on a term paper, but the difference is, that the Holy Spirit was working in and through him to bring about the very words that God wanted, which were his words. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, back over in Second Peter chapter 3. Now we're going to address the New Testament as being a part of the phrase, all Scripture. Is God breathed? Obviously, when Paul wrote that, uh, all the scriptures were not put together as we know them, and his primary consideration was the Old Testament. But Peter helps us out in Second Peter, chapter three. Peter, having written after the epistles of Paul, he refers to them, and he refers to them as being a part of the rest of Scripture. Now, the Holy Spirit, I believe, put that there so we would know that the writings of Paul were also inspired of God, as well as the other parts of the New Testament. Second Peter, chapter 3, beginning with verse 15. Peter says, And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, and he meant given by God, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. And that term rest carries the idea of part of a whole. And so... Peter is saying that just as they have distorted Paul's letters, they are also distorting the rest of Scripture. Meaning, Paul's letters were part of Scripture. And they were distorting his letters and other parts of Scripture as well. And so our first plank of evidence that we build our case is that the Bible undeniably claims to be the authoritative Word of God. Not the Word of men, but the Word of God. And as such, it is absolute truth. Propositional truth. The term plenary verbal inspiration means every word. Not every thought. Not concepts, as some would want us to believe. But every word is God-breathed. Therefore, it's authoritative for our lives. God spoke it. By God's grace, I will obey it. That's the commitment of my life. That must be the commitment of every Christian. You've heard me say before, you cannot surrender 
to the Lord of the Word if you've not surrendered to the Word of the Lord. How do we know what the Lord is saying except in His Word? You cannot separate the two. Without the Lordship of the Word, there can be no Lordship of Christ. He is the Word. This is His Word. Have you accepted its authority in your life? Have you called upon the Lord Jesus? Because it is authoritative, it contains the only way. only way of salvation. There is no other way. No other book will tell you the truth of salvation. It is only in this Word that we have the truth of how man is separated from God because of his sinfulness, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that man cannot remedy that situation in his own strength, in his own power. For none is righteous, no, not one. He cannot be good enough to earn heaven. He cannot be righteous enough to deserve God's acceptance. He's doomed. For the wages of sin is death. But it also tells us truth that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That Jesus, being all God and all man, came and lived the life we could not live. He died in our place on the cross, receiving the punishment for our sin that we deserved. He came alive from the dead on the third day. He's alive today, and He offers salvation to us. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. His Saving power is greater than any sin you've ever committed. There is no sin that is too great for the power of the blood of Christ. If you will come to Him in confession, acknowledging your sin, being willing to turn away from it. He doesn't say you have to turn away. You can't do that on your own. But be willing to. And then when He comes inside of you, He will enable you by that resurrection power to turn away. But be willing to turn away. Put your trust completely and only in Him. There's nothing you can do to add to what He's done to save you. You throw yourself completely on His mercy, believing He accomplished everything necessary for your salvation, embracing Him as your Savior, submitting your will to Him as your Lord. And you can experience the new birth. And you can have your sins forgiven, totally washed away, and have a place in heaven. And if you're already a believer, if you really believe it's God's Word, then you need to take time to read it and study it, don't you? How can you submit to the authority of it if you don't know what it says? 